Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome Hi. to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor to be in dialogue with Dr. Pascalis Kitromilidis. He has been a professor of political science at the University of Athens, where he has taught for 36 years. He is now Professor Emeritus. Additionally, he is presently a member of the Academy of Athens, where he holds the position of Chair of Political Thought. Pascalis, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with you today. I'm absolutely honored to have the privilege of discussing with you your newly published book, Insular Destinies, Perspectives on the History and Politics of Modern Cyprus, published in New York by Routledge Publishers 2021. Thank you for your time, your kindness, and your attention. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. Thank you for the the close reading of the book, which generated many, uh, many questions, uh, which uh, show, actually, when going through your questions, uh, one gets a sense not only that you've read the book uh, carefully, but how wide-ranging the subjects covered by the book are, which, in fact, uh, it's a good illustration of the uh, character of the book, which brings together a number of studies written from the 1970s to the second uh, decade of the 21st century. I think the last study included was published in 2015 in the Italian scholarly journal uh, Il Pensiero Politico. But the earliest studies were published back in the 1970s under the, the shock and the sense of tragedy generated by the uh, Turkish invasion and the division of Cyprus in 1974, and uh, these early parts of the book were an attempt to understand what happened, why it happened, and how things might have been different. So all of this, it's a kind of underlying uh, problematic uh, which motivated uh, the book. Can you kindly tell us a bit about yourself? Can you Tell us a bit about your earlier life and any of the formative events in your life that inspired your interest in the history of Cyprus. Can you tell us about some of the inspiring moments in your personal intellectual journey? Well, that has been a long journey, but uh, and it would take a long time to talk about it. But of course, I, I was born and raised in Cyprus uh, until my late teens. And then I went to the United States 
after serving my military service in the Cyprus National Guard, I was fortunate to receive a Fulbright scholarship, which sent me to the United States in 1969, uh, first to Wesleyan University in Connecticut, a liberal arts college, which I remember very fondly. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had the 50th reunion of my class of 72. And then from Wesleyan, I went on to Harvard University, Harvard Graduate School, where I studied, uh, I did my postgraduate uh, studies and my PhD, and then taught, I had a lectureship for a period. So that was a more or less a 10 year period in the United States, which was absolutely decisive for my intellectual formation. And uh, I still maintain a sense of gratitude, both to the two schools, which uh, provided my education and to the people who taught me, Fred Greenstein, great political scientist at Wesleyan, and uh, Stanley Hoffman, Judith Schlar, and Michael Walzer uh, at Harvard Graduate School. And my work and my ideas about scholarship, about politics, and about life more generally, have been shaped by these experiences in the United States. I came back to a position in the University of Athens in the year 1980 and taught in Athens for 36 years. Uh, I taught uh, political theory, and more specifically history of political thought, both ancient and modern. And of course, in these 36 years, I taught thousands of students, thousands of students who still stop me on the street to tell me that they have been my students, they have been taught and examined uh, by me. And this is a nice feeling that when people acknowledge uh, that you had an input in their, uh, in their education. And also in this period, uh, I did most of my writing uh, in the history of political thought, and I produced books on political theory, most, mostly modern liberal theory. Uh, and uh, I also wrote on the, on the life of the major uh, modern political thinkers from Machiavelli to Tocqueville. Uh, so, and I produce also editions, Greek editions of major texts of modern political theory. Uh, but on the side of this main occupation of my work, which also included uh, very systematic work on modern Greek political thought from the period of the Enlightenment and in the period of uh, nationalism. On the side of all of this, uh, of course, I never forgot Cyprus. And I, from time to time, when I had an opportunity, I would write an article uh, either in, in Greek or in English. And eventually, the main things I wrote in English have been collected in the book, Insular Destinies. So this is how the book came about. And of course, as I mentioned before, it includes two 
early essays written in the mid-1970s in which I tried to explain the nature of ethnic conflict, how the two communities of Cyprus, the Greek Cypriots, who, who are the large majority of the island, 80%, uh, and the small uh, community of Turkey Cypriots, uh, who for about three centuries lived peacefully together on the island, came to be engaged in a bitter ethnic conflict in the mid 20th century, which eventually led up to the uh, Turkish invasion and the division of the island. So I tried in a way to understand and make people understand how all of this happened. And of course, what you come up with when you look at the problem is the very catastrophic consequences of outside intervention in the domestic politics of Cyprus, which uh, in a way pushed the, uh, the two groups, the two ethnic communities into conflict from the 1950s uh, onwards. So th this is the early part of the book. And then there are other uh, sections in the book which in a way try to bring into uh, focus some of my broader intellectual uh, projects uh, by looking at, uh, at Cyprus as a case study. Uh, for instance, the study I have on the anonymity of a prominent woman in Cyprus is connected with some work I did uh, in the 1980s on the question of uh, uh, gender inequality in, in Greek uh, society and cultural life, as that is reflected in the literature of the Greek Enlightenment, for instance. And then I had a chance by publishing a letter by a woman uh, whose husband had been killed by uh, an Ottoman uh, uh, official in Cyprus uh, to discuss the question of gender inequality and anonymity in uh, Cypriot traditional society as well. And of course, the major part of this uh, uh, attempt to bring my broader uh, intellectual and research projects to bear on Cyprus is the first part of the book in which I survey the intellectual history of Ottoman Cyprus, both how the intellectual experience of the Cypriot Renaissance, which is observable in the 16th century under Venetian rule, continues in the diaspora after the Ottoman conquest of 1571, and then after the diaspora expressions of Cypriot intellectual life in the six, late 16th and in the 17th century, in the 18th century, in a way we witness a kind of return uh, to, to Cyprus, to the emergence of uh, some local uh, expressions of intellectual activity uh, where there had been a total intellectual desert in the uh, earlier period on account of 
than Ottoman conquest. So this is the major part of the book uh, in terms of the connections of Cyprus with the broader movements of intellectual life in the in the Greek world uh, at large. What inspired you to prepare this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? Well, the, as I said, the motivation initially is this motivation is illustrated by the two studies on ethnic conflict was to understand the problem of Cyprus and to understand it not only in terms of power politics, but in terms of the society, its development, its experience, its complexities. And from that, I moved on, uh, as I was saying before, to other aspects of the social and intellectual experience of Cyprus. As, and in my broader intellectual projects, which have been the main uh, focus of my work, which have been modern Greek intellectual history, the history of the Greek Enlightenment, mostly in the 18th and in the first part of the 19th century, I was trying to add a kind of Cypriot vignette in what I was doing with broader Greek intellectual phenomena. And this has produced my uh, book on Cypriot learning and Cypriot intellectuals in the Ottoman, in the three centuries of Ottoman period, 1571-1878. And from this book, you have, you get a sense uh, uh, in, in the chapter on uh, the Cypriot uh, intellectuals of the and intellectual life of the Ottoman period. So the motivation was to put Cyprus in focus with whatever else I was doing on the broader Greek uh, uh, intellectual history. What is your book's contribution to Cypriot intellectual history? Well, I think the main contribution in that regard is what I write on early modern Cypriot learning in the from the late 16th to the eight to the late 19th century which was the attempt to recover in many cases from unpublished uh, sources, the movement of ideas and the written expression of Cypriot intellectual life uh, initially as a survival of the remarkable uh, reflections of the Renaissance in Cypriot cultural intellectual life as we witnessed that in the 16th century. And then we, we witnessed after the Ottoman conquest in 1571, the flight of intellectuals from Cyprus to it, mostly to Italy and gradually elsewhere in Europe. And I tried to put all of that together by collecting information on the lives of these people and on their works and the flow of their ideas. And I think the main contribution of the book is, make, is making known that there had been Cypriot intellectual activity. All those three centuries of Ottoman rule, primarily in Italy, where they were publishing their books, but also 
as when in Europe, and gradually a kind of return in the emergence first of educational institutions in the early 19th century in Cyprus, and the gradual production of a local uh, group of authors uh, writing in Greek and publishing their books in the middle decades of the 19th century in the great intellectual centers of uh, Greek, uh, of the broader Greek world in the Eastern Mediterranean, Smyrna, Izmir, uh, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. So, and over the years, you see a kind of increasing reorientation of Cyprus and its intellectuals towards the new national center, which was the independent uh, Greek nation state. So through the life and work, the intellectual production of Cypriot intellectuals, we can also witness the development, not only of intellectual life, but also political thought and the sense of collective identity, which as the decades go by under the impact of the enlightenment and then under the influence of the powerful force, force of nationalism in the 19th century, they come to think of themselves and of their community in national terms and this lays the foundation of the emergence of a national movement in Cyprus, aspiring the liberation of the island from Ottoman rule through union with the national independent Greek state. So all of this comes through the lens of the reconstruction uh, of intellectual trends and the written expression of intellectuals uh, of Cypriot origin. Can you tell us about the Lino Bambakoi, the crypto-Christians hmm. of Cyprus? I'm glad you picked that up. Um, this term literally translates as linen cottons, which means two different uh, forms of uh, plant-based textiles. Uh, and it basically denotes people with a double religious identity, linen cottons, lino bambaki, which means people who were openly and officially Muslim in their religious life, but they maintain a covert Christian Orthodox religious life. Uh, which basically indicates they were the product of conversions from Christianity to Islam uh, in the period of Ottoman rule. And we have considerable evidence of how and why that happened, because as late as the 1820s, if you think that the Ottoman uh, conquest of Cyprus dates back to the 1570s, 16th century, and throughout this period, people were converting to Islam in order to avoid the capital tax. And we have evidence of entire villages converting in order to avoid the capital tax as late as the 1820s. There are two lists 
of uh, uh, two uh, lease of villages paying the capitation tax, which was imposed by the Ottoman uh, state or non-Muslim uh, members of the population. So in 1825, these villages were paying the capitation tax. And then in another list of 1828, in, in this three-year period, they are not on the list. Why? Because they had converted to Islam and they avoided in this way paying the capitation tax, which was the main tax, uh, the main source of tax revenue for the Ottoman state. Now, some of these people who converted to Islam maintain in their private, in their secret life, the practices of Christianity. And this goes now to other villages or other inhabitants of the same village. Uh, because there, many villages were mixed of both, with people of both faiths. And those who were openly Muslim, but maintained rituals and forms of worship of Christian content and character, were described as linen kotos, linopambaki. And they were encountered in villages in the Paphos district, in Western Cyprus, but also in the Central Plain. Uh, and this was not a phenomenon unique to Cyprus. They were crypto-Christians, as they were called, in other parts of the Ottoman Empire, especially in Asia Minor, in Cappadocia, in Central Asia Minor, and in Northern, Northeastern Asia Minor, uh, the region called uh, Pontos, uh, who survived into the 20th century. At the time of the Ottoman reforms in the 19th century, when in principle, freedom of religion and worship was acknowledged by the Ottoman authorities, some of these crypto-Christians uh, reconverted back to Christianity. Uh, and in Cyprus, some of the Linopambaki, when Cyprus uh, passed under British uh, rule in 1878, some of the Linopambaki returned to Christianity and others expressed interest of returning. But uh, in some cases, they were not encouraged officially by the church to do so. So they retained their secret uh, Christian identity. So this is the phenomenon of Linopambaji, which survived until uh, the middle of the 20th century in some areas of Cyprus. So we spoke about the linen cottons to remember a phenomenon of uh, religious syncretism, mm -hmm. which tells a lot about the character of traditional society in Cyprus. Who was Neophytos Rodinos? Why is he a significant figure? Well, Neophilus Rodinos is one of my favorite Cypriot authors of the 17th century. And I, I would not uh, hesitate to call him the most important Cypriot author of the 17th century, to whom I devoted considerable attention and research 
when uh, in the period 1996, 2002, I work on my project on Cypriot learning in the Ottoman centuries. He, why, why is he interested? He was born in a mountainous, in a mountain village in central Cyprus, in the central uh, mountainous massif uh, of the Trodos uh, mountain range. But he left Cyprus at an early age, uh, went to, uh, to Crete, then went to Italy. He became a monk and he was ordained uh, a priest. And it seems that at some stage he converted to Catholicism he became one of the early representatives of what uh, we call the Uniate Church, a part of Roman Catholicism which maintains the Orthodox uh, religious uh, uh, right uh, in terms of uh, forms of worship and services and so forth. But he wrote extensively, besides his religious activity, uh, working for the conversion of Orthodox communities to the United Church. He wrote extensively, uh, mostly on religious subjects in vernacular modern Greek. And this is what makes him very important. He is one of the earliest authors, not only in the Cypriot uh, uh, context, but in the broader modern Greek context, who use the spoken language as their medium of written expression. And his language is very interesting because it is vernacular, but it also maintains some elements of the Cypriot, uh, uh, Cypriot uh, uh, dialect, Cypriot idiomatic uh, expressions. And through this form of speech, which is occasionally very productive in terms of narrative when he relates, for instance, the lives of saints. These are very nice stories written in a lively language. So this makes him one of the early uh, exponents of uh, the position of writing modern Greek in the language of the people. Uh, besides his religious writings, at the end of his life, uh, just slightly before 1656, he published a book in Rome called Of Heroes, Periron, in which he makes a kind of retrospective survey of the history of Cyprus through the main personalities in the history of Cyprus, the heroes, as he calls them, kings, saints, and other persons of prominence in the history of Cyprus, both pagan and Christian. And he ends up with an appeal to Cypriot patriots. He's really this uniate priest who wrote in vernacular Greek and worked for the conversion of Orthodox communities uh, to uh, the uniate church. He became the first exponent of Cypriot patriotism. And all of this, of course, is the result of his experiences, his travels, his contact with 
Western uh, intellectual currents, which helps him to develop a kind of self-awareness, which is unique in his time and quite, uh, quite early in the history of modern Greek uh, scholarship and, and literature in that he develops a secular patriotic perspective on the collective life and the prospects of Cyprus as a historical entity. But through that, for the broader Greek world and its future. So this is what makes uh, Neophytos Rodinos so important and so uh, uh, dear to me. And of course, I had the good fortune uh, to discover in the Vatican Library, the Apostolic Library of the uh, of the uh, papal uh, state, the Vatican City, uh, some of his manuscripts, which survive in unique copies in the Vatican Library. And I published one of these uh, stories, basically, which is the life of a Byzantine uh, Saint, Saint Ignatius, uh, Patriarch of Constantinople. And it talks about the troubles and the adventures in the life of St. Ignatius, Patriarch of Constantinople. But it's also a very beautiful narrative of a life in vernacular Greek. And I, I published, I made the first uh, printed edition of, of that work by Rodinos. And I hope one day to do a new edition of his last, his secular work, on uh, on the heroes and the other prominent uh, representatives of the history of Cyprus. So Rodinos is one of the big figures in my work on the on the intellectual life of Cyprus in the Ottoman period. Although he he never returned to Cyprus, he ended his days in Rome, but he always retained throughout his life uh, a sense of Cypriot uh, identity. What is your book's contribution to the history of Ottoman Cyprus? Well, I think the main contribution has been the work I have done on the intellectual history of this period, which I described uh, I described before. Uh, the history of Ottoman Cyprus in recent years has been extensively researched by other researchers who have worked on the Ottoman uh, sources and have published collections of Ottoman documents, which are very useful for the uh, for understanding the social and economic conditions. This the Ottoman sources give us a lot of information on taxation and how Ottoman rule was transacted uh, through local officials who primarily kept themselves busy in keeping the people down and taxing them. Uh, so this uh, research in the Ottoman uh, archives and in the Ottoman records has enriched our knowledge of uh, social and economic conditions. My work on the intellectuals through the publication also of surviving 
sources has been uh, focused on the intellectual life in the diaspora and in Cyprus. And I think uh, this has been the main contribution coming uh, from me and from my Western rather than Ottoman perspective on the history of Cyprus. Can you tell us about Christofakis Constantinou? Why is he a significant figure? Christofakis was active and he's documented in the sources in the 1740s. But we, the only information, the only record about him were two mentions of his violent death on Easter, Eastern, Easter, Easter Sunday, 17, the year 1750, on his way to uh, church to celebrate uh, Easter, the resurrection of Christ, uh, when he was killed by his enemy, uh, a local uh, a, a Muslim Cypriot who had been a bandit and whom obviously Christophakis, who had been an official of the Ottoman administration of Cyprus, had somehow uh, tried to restrain in what he was doing. He was killed by him. And that tragic event was recorded in the sources of the time. And we have two mentions. One, the, the best known record in the history of Cyprus by the Archimandrite Kyprianos, which is the major source on the history of Cyprus in the Ottoman period. So we knew Christophakis from the mention of his death by Kyprianos. And then another uh, source, uh, which was published in the early part of the 20th century, also mentions the misfortune of this man who was important and was killed on the night of the uh, feast of the resurrection. So this was the only information we had about Christophakis. When many years ago, I was doing my researches in the state archives in Venice, and I was looking at the records of the Ottoman, uh, of the Venetian consulate in Ottoman Cyprus in the 18th century, I discovered a lot of further information. And gradually this figure who had been known only by this tragic end of his life, in a way acquired uh, flesh and a face uh, through information about his many activities, primarily in the 1740s, mostly his economic transactions, his role as an interpreter, dragoman, in the British consulate in Cyprus, his, his debts, his uh, uh, relations with the foreign, the European councils in Larnaca. Uh, so I began collecting material of Christophakis there, first in Venice, then in the National Archives in France, I also tried the British National Archives at Kew Gardens in London. Uh, not much material there, but with the Venetian material and the material I collected from the national, the French National Archives, I hope to write a biography of Christophakis, which is not going to be very long, but at least it will put to this person who is known only 
by his death, a more sort of vivid uh, portrait uh, of life and uh, activity. And of course, we also possess a wall painting of Christophakis and his family in a chapel he dedicated to St. George in a in an estate he obviously uh, owned in a village outside Larnaca in Cyprus. So on the evidence of that family portrait and the material I have collected from various archives, including the letter of his wife, which I mentioned earlier, uh, to one of his uh, creditors who was demanding his money back. And the, and the wife writes and asks for understanding and mercy to give them a leeway before they can uh, repay him for his uh, loans to Christophakis. We have a rather complex story of economic activity, political activity, uh, investment, borrowing, and tragedy. And I hope to put all of that in a, a monograph, which I have actually begun uh, writing and continue writing from time to time when I get uh, some uh, some moments to remember Christophakis and write about him. And in the book, I publish the letter of his wife to uh, the Council of the Republic of Ragusa, modern Dubrovnik, uh, in Larnaca, in which he, she and her two older boys request an extension in the payment of the debts of Christophakis uh, to this man. So this is uh, the occasion I had to talk about gender relations because this woman never signs in her own name. We know we we don't we have her letter, but we don't know her name because she only signs as the the miserable woman of the unfortunate uh, Christophakis. So I I call this the anonymity of a prominent uh, woman. So this is the reason that I was attracted uh, to this man and his. Uh, his activity and his tragedy. Who was Archimandrite Kyprianus Kuriokortis? Can you describe Kuri his importance? This is the major historian of Cyprus. Archimandrite Kyprianus Kuriokortis. This is how he, he gives this surname to himself in his history of Cyprus, which he published in Venice in 1788. Uh, Kyprianos, like Neophytos Rodinos, came from a highland village in uh, Cyprus, Kilani, uh, uh, which tells us something about the character of societies in the highlands of Cyprus, that the life of learning and various forms of economic activity like handicraft production and so forth, was in a way withdrawn on the highlands where Ottoman rule was not felt so heavily. 
that's the way I'm trying to explain why these highland villages, which are distant, isolated, and remote, produce important intellectuals in the centuries of Ottoman period, of Ottoman rule. So, Kiprianos is the other person after Rodinos who gets educated. He rises to uh, an important religious position in the Archdiocese of Cyprus under Archbishop Chrysanthos, who was a great archbishop in the second half of the 18th century. And Chrysanthos sent Kiprianos to Venice, which was the major center of Greek printing activity in the Ottoman period, to publish the lives of Cypriot saints. That was also an important initiative of rising an awakening of collective consciousness through hagiology, the life of saints, of Cypriot saints. And the Archbishop wants these lives to be published for the religious education of his flock. So Kiprianos leaves Cyprus, goes to Venice. He spends some time in Trieste as a teacher, and then spends considerable time in Venice publishing these works uh, about Cypriot sense. And at the same time, he does research in the libraries of Venice. He reads works of the Enlightenment, like the works of Buffon, who was a great uh, natural uh, uh, scientist, geographer, geologist of the Enlightenment. And on the basis of this material, and also reading the history of Cyprus published by an early Cypriot intellectual, uh, Stefano Lusignan, uh, who was a refugee at the Ottoman conquest of Cyprus in the 16th century, Kiprianos produces this important work, The Chronological History of the Island of Cyprus, published in Venice in 1788. He has an early part of the work on the geology and geography of Cyprus, beginning with the formation of islands, how islands were formed. He writes about all periods of the history of Cyprus, and he concludes with a very important part, which is the most important part of the work, which is the history of his own time. And he records many incidents, uh, which were recorded for the first time in his work about uh, the history of Cyprus in the 18th century, including the murder of Christophakis, but also he includes a very important section on social life. It's a very early, in a way, uh, pioneering social history of Cyprus, which includes considerable information on material life, on uh, on uh, produce, uh, products, uh, delicacies, uh, in a way, uh, I think, living in Venice, in the diaspora, and feeling an exile. He tries to recover his Cypriot heritage by speaking about all these things and speaking particularly about taste. He, he, he remembers uh, products of Cyprus, which 
are favorites in the life of a Cypriot until the present day. And through this, uh, through the recording of these memories, in a way he recovers his Cypriot identity and his Cypriot uh, heritage. And he makes us in a way partake of all of that through what he writes on life of Cyprus in the 18th century in his own time. That is why this is a very valuable source for understanding the history and also the social feeling of Cyprus in a Cyprus society in this early modern period. So between Rodinos and Kiprianos, uh, uh, I think we can get a very good sense of uh, the Cypriot intellectual heritage of the Ottoman period. What new insights are provided in your research regarding the British occupation of Cyprus? Well, the British took over Cyprus in 1878 as part of an understanding with the Ottoman Empire, which preceded the Congress of Berlin of that year. And the understanding had to do that Britain, the British Empire, would use Cyprus as a place of arms, as they call it, and assist the Ottomans in case they were attacked by they were attacked by the Russians. That was, and of course, it was part of the British imperial policy of building the road to India. India was the major, uh, the major uh, body of the British Empire after the loss of the American colonies in the 18th century. And the British Empire was basically organized in the 19th century around building up the empire in India and the road to India. And they built up a strategic role by occupying strategic posts in the Mediterranean, Gibraltar, Malta, the Greek Ionian Islands for a period Cyprus, and then all the way to Egypt and the Suez Canal and down to India. Cyprus was occupied by Britain uh, with this imperial logic. And in the book, I don't uh, speak extensively about British rule, except as a context for the development of the relations between the two communities in Cyprus, the Greek and Turkish. Cyprus, and of course, I talk about the role of the British in stimulating the development of ethnic conflict as a kind of building up a block to the Greek Cypriot movement of for national self determination. Uh, in other writings in Greek, I wrote extensively on the British uh, occupation and the organization of the administration of Cyprus under uh, uh, the British Empire. And I hope that those writings in Greek will make a companion volume to this one, bringing together my writings uh, in Greek on uh, Cyprus and its uh, political uh, history and its political dilemmas in in this book, I 
primarily, a primarily focus on the Ottoman period and its intellectual and social life. And I bring the British uh, occupation and British rule of Cyprus into the focus of the narrative of the book by talking about British rule as the context of ethnic, uh, ethnic relations in ethnic conflict. Can you tell us about the Zurich agreements? What did they stipulate? What were their ramifications and consequences? There was a period in the, in the 1950s. I mentioned that in the chapter on uh, the, in the two chapters on the ethnic uh, on ethnic relations uh, and, and the ethnic conflict, that the Greek Cypriots who were a community which over the decades from the beginning of the British occupation had cultivated and developed their national uh, identity as Greeks. And that development was expressed in many claims for the self-determination of Cyprus repeatedly uh, throughout the 80 years of British rule. And uh, there was even an uprising in 1931 uh, asking for self-determination in the shape of union of Cyprus as a Greek island with Greeks, with Greece, with the independent Greek state. Uh, of course, the British Empire would not concede that claim because, as I said before, Cyprus was an important stop on the strategic road to India. And then after Britain uh, developed a very important presence in the Middle East following the First World War, uh, Cyprus was strategically important for the British presence in the Middle East as well. And the whole uh, issue of the control of the Suez Canal. So Britain would not concede the claims of Cypriot for national self-determination. And this led to the organization uh, as part of the anti-colonial uh, struggle of the period which was being uh, uh, witnessed throughout the British Empire in Africa, in the British colonies in Africa, for instance, there was an initiative for the organization of an armed struggle against British rule in Cyprus beginning in 1955. This, of course, uh, led to violent suppression by the, the British authorities. And this became the context for the expression of ethnic conflict as well. And at some point in the late 1950s, the, the British came up with the idea of partitioning the island as they had done in India, partitioning the subcontinent in uh, several political units, India, East Pakistan, West Pakistan, and so forth. Uh, they came up with plans for the partition of Cyprus. Uh, there were two plans, the Radcliffe and then the Macmillan plan, which were suggesting the partition of Cyprus between Greece and Turkey. And at that time, uh, the prime ministers of Greece and Turkey uh, 
Constantine Karamanis in Atnan Mederes, made in Zurich in Switzerland, and made an agreement for an independent Cyprus in which they would have an institutional organization bringing the two communities together into the administration of the state. And that was a way for Greece to avoid the partition of Cyprus and for Turkey to secure increased uh, participation and rights above their percentage in the population for the Turkish Cypriots. These were basically the Zurich agreements between the two prime ministers. And uh, in February 1959, and later in that month, uh, the Zurich agreements were confirmed in London. So it's the Zurich-London agreements by representatives of Greek and Turkish Cypriots and the British government. And the signature of the London agreement based on the Zurich agreements of the two prime ministers became the basis for the creation of the Cyprus Republic, which was eventually proclaimed independent uh, as a republic in the Commonwealth uh, on the 16th of August, 1960. And this is how the Cyprus Republic came into being. And I remember my I was an elementary school uh, uh, pupil at the time. I remember the night of the 16th of August with fireworks on the sky in Nicosia when at midnight, at that night, uh, the final independence of Cyprus was signed by the British government, Sergio Foot, the, the British governor of Cyprus and the main, the main leaders of the two communities, Archbishop Makarios and Dr. Fazil Kuchuk, uh, respectively, respectively president and vice president of the Republic. And this is how independent Cyprus came into being. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about research that you have been working on since completing this book? What have you been focusing on after this book was completed? Well, the this book, Insular Destinies, uh, in which, you, as you can tell from the title and from repeated references in the articles that make up the book, I sort of, I am in a conversation with uh, the great work of Fernand Brodel on the Mediterranean in the 16th century. But I take those ideas and in a way, experimentally, I try them out in discussing various aspects of the history of Cyprus uh, in the period of Ottoman uh, rule. And even later, what, what it means to be an island and what it means uh, for the life of the people to be engaged in what I call insular destiny. Uh, so this is what I have done. And I hope, as I was saying before, to bring together my writings in Greek on the history of modern Cyprus uh, as a kind of twin volume uh, to this one and leave this for future historians to read, to judge, to criticize, and perhaps get some ideas for further research. Thank you.
I could right. not be more grateful and thankful for your time, for your wisdom, and your generosity during the course of our dialogue today. Thank you. Thank you. And please let me have the final product of this. Absolutely. Okay. As, as okay. we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host on the New Books in History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've okay. been in dialogue with Dr. Pascalis Kitromilidis. We have been yes. discussing his newly published book, Insular Destinies, Perspectives on the History and Politics of Modern Cyprus, published in New York by Routledge Publishers 2021. Pascalis has been Professor of Political Science at the University of Athens, where he has taught for 36 years. He is now Professor Emeritus. Presently, he is a member of the Academy of Athens, where he holds the position of Chair of Political Thought. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Nice, nice to talk with you.